and go down in their zeal to get out of here, but uh, they're okay. We'll be fine. All right, we would like to have you take your Bible. I said, should say, I would like to have you take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 15, 29 to 39 is what we're looking at today. Matthew 15, 29 to 39. Hope you have your text with you. Uh, as Gil introduced correctly, we're going to be talking about uh, the compassion of Jesus Christ, among other things today. And I would like to begin by saying that one of our towering goals in the Christian life, in other words, the things Jesus wants us to do, is to be like him, to be like Jesus in every way we possibly can. We want to be those people that will emulate his character, and we want to try to do the things that Jesus did and, and be like he was in that way, in, including how we treat other people, of course. We want to think like he thinks. We want to live in a way that models itself on his life. And with God's enablement, we can do pretty much a good job if we have faith and we follow him in doing those good things and showing compassion if we'll make the choice to do it. And sometimes that's where it begins. I am either going to make a choice to follow after Jesus Christ or I'm going to choose not to. And that happens every single day where we have to make that choice. Do I follow Jesus in this or do I follow maybe what I want to do and what I'm thinking of? Well, uh, we want to do things God's way. That's what our desire is. And many people before us have done things the way God would want them to be done. Now, uh, I had an illustration here for you this week, and I discovered on Friday that it's one I just used a month ago or so. So I thought, well, you're not going to be ready for that. You'll probably remember it. So I went back and found another one. Now, what I'm trying to do is to illustrate there's the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. I'm trying to illustrate that we need to work at doing the things Jesus wants us to do, and today it's compassion. This illustration is about somebody who did it right and somebody who did it wrong. But I have no idea whether any of these people were Christians, so that's not my point. My point is there's a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do, but I, I just don't know uh, the history of this enough to be able to tell you or make that comment, but it's still good for what we want to talk about. So here it is. A man by the name of Ernest Shackleton led a daring expedition way back in 1914 uh, to reach Antarctica. A year earlier, a lesser-known Canadian-led expedition headed by, uh, by another man went in a completely different direction to explore the North Pole. Both ships, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but the one that went north, the Carluke in the north and the Endurance in the south, pretty sure that one's right, the endurance in the south, found themselves trapped by solid ice because they were there too late in the year. And each crew was faced with a uh, uh, fight or, or flight survival instinct, but they couldn't fly anywhere. They couldn't get out of it. But the outcomes of the two expeditions could not have been more different. In the north, the crew members from the Carluke, excuse me, led by, and I'm going to have trouble here, Wilhammer Stephenson, we'll go with that, uh, degenerated into a band of selfish, mean-spirited, cutthroat individuals, ending in the death of all 11 crew members. It was every man for himself out in the middle of nowhere, socked in with ice, and they couldn't do anything but hurt each other. But in the south, Shackleton's crew faced the same problem. There was cold, there was food shortages, there was stress, there was anxiety, but his crew responded with teamwork, self-sacrifice, and an astonishing amount of good cheer. Now, again, I don't know if that's because of Christ or not, but that's the way we should do it. 
In the end, each leader, and we're talking about the two men that led the expeditions, stayed true to their core leadership values. And that's what we need to do in life. And when we are faced with things, we need to stay with our core leadership values. And that leadership value comes from Jesus Christ. And we want to do what he tells us to do. This is what our leader would do, what Shackleton's men did. Uh, Stephenson valued success above caring for people, the guy in the north, and he constantly communicated his ultimate objective, getting to the North Pole. In Stephenson's, Stephenson's words, uh, this meant, and I'm quoting, that even the lives of the crew are secondary to the accomplishments of the work, end quote. This, uh, in its very end, means that Stephenson denied that his drive for success uh, led, led to the tragedy because he was all about just getting there. He didn't care about his men. He cared about for himself, maybe, but not for his crew. In sharp contrast, Shackleton's leadership focused on the value and dignity of his teammates. At one of the lowest, lowest points of the trip, Shackleton wrote, and again quoting, the task was now to secure the safety of the party, meaning the men. The well-being of his team drove him to put others first. Shackleton even gave away uh, his mittens and boots as they went through this and volunteered for the longest night watches. By valuing each person, Shackleton forged a team that was willing to share their rations with each other, even on the brink of starvation through his example of sacrificial leadership. Shackleton was able to accomplish this, his ultimate objective, which was saving the lives of his members, not reaching the pole. And I think that's a great illustration, like we saw also on the, the video this morning. Uh, there's a lot of things available for us that we can do to show compassion to other people. And it's not that hard uh, to find those ways. Today we're going to speak about compassion and the power of Christ. Those two go together, my friends, and they need to go together for us. We can be empowered by him, and we should start with being compassionate as he is compassionate. So we have to ask the question, are you and I compassionate? I mean, at our very soul, are, are we always tugged when we pass somebody on the road that's having trouble that maybe I should help? Uh, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. Are you and I compassionate? Do we see humanity and want to help where they are hurting? Do we want to bring hope where there is hopelessness? Do we care when they are crying? Is a lack of resources ever our excuse for not being compassionate? Jesus funds his will. And that's something else I want you to remember. Jesus will fund, he'll take care of that which is his will. So it's good for us to make sure we do the will of God. Let's read our text this morning, and uh, that's found in Matthew chapter 15, uh, verses 29 to 39, and here's what the text says. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, having gone up on a mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them uh, those who were lame and crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I feel compassion for the people, because they have remained here with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. 
And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, he broke them, and he started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. See, that's how it works. God gives you what you need, so you can give it to other people who need what you've been given. He goes on to say, And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat, and he came into the region of Magadan. And we'll talk about that as we uh, get to that part in the text. What I want to say, first of all, has to do with verses 29 to 31. And I think what we learned there, if you're following along in your bulletin, is that uh, this question, really, are we always ready to bring aid to those who need it? Is, is that what we do as Christians? Are we, are we looking for opportunities? Do we have that in our mind that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the opportunity to help somebody if I can today? Have we even prayed for that and said, Lord, bring somebody into my path today that I can help, uh, that I can uh, do some, some good for in the name of Christ? Well, I think that's the attitude that Jesus always had, looking for the, to show compassion. In verse 29, uh, Jesus has been, as we know from last time, on the coastal region of Phoenicia, uh, Syrophoenicia, we would call it, in the cities of Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, Gentile people, Gentile rulers. And he went there to get away from the Pharisees and the religious leaders so he could live a little longer, so he could complete his mission. He just did an exorcism for a Canaanite woman and her daughter. It was for the daughter that had a demon, and he had her come, and she uh, was told, look, I, I came to Israel. I didn't come to, I didn't come to you. I came to Israel, and that's who I'm here for, and I'm going to heal them. And I'm not going to take the bread that was meant for Israel and give it to the dogs. And that caused the lady to get on her knees in a worship style and to say, Lord, but even the crumbs that fall from <clears throat> the plates of the children are given to the house dogs. And he said, your faith is fantastic. <laughs> the demon has left your daughter. And he healed the girl. It wasn't even in his presence. Now we find that he's taken a, a small trip over to Galilee. And if he was inside, then it wasn't that far. But he departs from there, and he travels west towards the Sea of Galilee. He goes up on a mountain, and he sits down. Uh, I want you to know that there's a lot of hubbub in the commentaries about what mountain did Jesus sit on. Uh, and I want you to know that, uh, just so you know, uh, it is not possible for anyone to pinpoint with accuracy except Jesus, and he's not telling us where this actually was. Where did he go? Where was this mountain? Somewhere near Galilee, we think. And uh, a number of theologians and commentaries have postulated a couple of big ideas and attached them to this account that may or may not have happened, but that's uh, something people like to do all the time. They may not be factual. Their uh, idea depends on where Jesus was, and nobody really knows where he was. So here's a couple of issues, and I want to bring up these issues because sometimes people make fun of the Bible, and they say, you know, your Bible doesn't tell us the whole truth, it doesn't tell us everything, and you guys can't agree on it. Well, there are some things we go out on a limb and we say this is probably what happened when uh, it, there's no proof that it did happen. This is what some theologians are doing because it, it makes a great theological story if they're right. But I don't know if they're right. It doesn't say. Liberal scholars like to say that Matthew and Mark are simply telling the same story that they just told that we read in Matthew 14, 13 to 21, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, I want you to understand something because I've come to understand that a lot of times... I use the word liberal, and people I don't think know what I'm talking about. A liberal theologian is somebody who doesn't take the Bible for what it says, 
they don't believe that Matthew actually wrote Matthew. They don't believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. A liberal is somebody who may deny salvation in Jesus Christ. So um, none of you are liberals, right? Uh, you all believe salvation is through Jesus Christ, through faith alone and Christ alone. You take the truth of the Bible for the word of God. And uh, liberals are always trying to destroy the word of God and just make it a man's book. So some liberals like to say, well, at this point, the book of Matthew, whoever wrote that, and the book of Mark, whoever wrote that, they're just retelling the same story. And uh, they're, ju they're just uh, feeding us more information about the same thing. Now, we disagree because there's a whole lot of differences in the two accounts. The number of people there is different. Now, in one of them, there's 5,000 men plus women and children. Here, there's only 4,000 men plus women and children. And that would be something that would be hard to hide, and the uh, gospel writers didn't hide it. There's two different numbers. The number of loaves and fishes that were used are different. Here, we have seven loaves and a few fish. We didn't have that with the 5,000. Uh, they were at the shore when that happened, and this is taking place on a mountain. At, one, at the one in chapter 14, there were 12 baskets of leftover food picked up, not as big as the baskets used here to pick them up, so there's even different size of baskets. They got 12 from the 5,000. Now with the 4,000, they get seven baskets full, and they're bigger baskets at that point, and they picked them up after they were done. There's an incredible amount of differences. Nobody, I think, would look at that and say, this is the same story. You could look at it and say it's the same story and they changed some of the details, but then it wouldn't be the same story. I think uh, they are two different times when Jesus fed uh, the, the multitudes. Next, people like to make Jesus be in Galilee, in the Galilee area, uh, on the east side of the upper sea of Galilee, where Philip was the tetrarch. And so there was a Gentile audience there. So they say Jesus went to a mountain where it was all Gentiles. See, he's already proven he cares about the Jews. He's already proven that. But now he wants to go up and show us that he cares about Gentiles too, which if that's true would be good because I think everybody in here is probably a Gentile, right? And so we're thankful for that. But anyway, they say he was up north and he talked to Gentiles. They make a point that Jesus fed Jews first in the 5,000. Now he's going to feed Gentiles to show uh, that he is the great provider for them too. Well, what's he trying to say? That Jews are more important? There's 5,000, only 4,000 here? Does that make any sense? No. Uh, but they like to say that Jesus is just showing in his mission, hey, uh, I'm all about Gentiles too, so I'm going to go up and feed them. They also like to say that this is a forerunner to the marriage supper of the Lamb or just a picture of the millennial banquet Jesus will provide for his people. Well, you can say it's a banquet. It certainly is a meal. Uh, I don't know that there's Jews and Gentiles mixed together in this. There might be here, but not probably with the 5,000. Uh, the issue here is not that. It isn't about that at all. It would make a good lesson, though, that God is uh, for everybody, but we already know that he is. And this makes a pretty good lesson, but no one knows if that's really the case. No one knows if Jesus went out of his way just to uh, target some Gentile people. So why are we saying it? Why do you bother saying it? What really is important here is, what does Matthew want us to learn? There's one other account in Mark where it talks about this story, but Mark uh, puts a kind of a different twist on it. Still 4,000, still the same he used to feed them with, but he has a different goal. If you're going to study a Bible book and you're going to exegete that book, you're going to want to know why are their stories different in the Gospels a little bit, and the answer is because Matthew has something he wants to promote that Mark didn't want to promote, or different than what Mark wanted to promote. So he gave different details of the same story. It's still the same story. It's still biblical, 
but it's different because Matthew wants to tell us things. Why didn't the other two gospel writers record this? Because it wasn't important to the argument of their book, although Jesus did it. John said, if you were to write down everything that Jesus said and did, he said, I don't even think the books in all the world could contain what Jesus said and did. So these, these are picked out for us on purpose. They're trying to teach us something. And we want to make sure we understand that. To just conclude the audience is Gentiles to fail to exegete the passage. We call that eisegesis, where you read into the text. This is not eisegesis. This is exegesis. We are not to make up things that the passage is not talking about. Uh, there are some preachers I've really liked, and uh, they're good, solid people, but they tell you the background to some of these stories that there is no evidence for. They say, well, this is probably where Mary said this, or probably where Peter said this, or they probably went here. It doesn't say that, so why are you making it up? Make a better story? I don't know. But I don't think we're supposed to make up things. Just go with what the passage tells us. We have no indication from the other Gospels either about where this took place at all, so we just don't know. So biblical exegesis demands that we discover what Matthew was inspired by God to teach us and that must come from what he says here, not from what it comes and says elsewhere, unless it's a comment about Matthew. So that's what we do. I went over that because there's people attacking the Bible all the time. There's people that want to make you think that this book is not inspired by God, that you can't put your life in it, you can't trust it. And I want you to know uh, if you care to check, it is trustworthy and it is the word of God. So I'm going to go down to, to verse 30 here. A big leap from 29, right? And a large crowd came to him, and look what they did. They brought those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them at the feet of Jesus. And he responded by what? Healing them. Large crowds find Jesus and bring all manner of sick and debilitated people to him to heal them. Everywhere Jesus goes, the people believe one thing for sure. He can heal people physically. What Jesus wants them to believe is, do you believe I can heal people spiritually? Everybody that is conceived in the womb needs healing because their soul is dead and they're bound for hell. And you need the healing of Jesus Christ to make your soul alive and to give you life. So here's these large crowd, this large crowd coming to Jesus. I just love this picture. I love to pray that way. I love to pray uh, to, to help people put stuff at the feet of Jesus. That's where it belongs. Look what they did. They simply say that they put him at the foot of Jesus and Jesus healed him and they glorified the God of Israel. And uh, that's kind of a rare thing in verse 31. It says, he healed these people and they glorified the God of Israel. That is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's only used in Matthew. It's used over and over and over in the Old Testament. So if I was going to say, who is this crowd uh, about? It's probably more about Jewish people because they use a phrase that comes right out of the Old Testament and it's not used by any other New Testament author, the God of Israel. Matthew is trying to connect Jesus and his work with God the Father. And so he does. And they glorified the God of Israel, which is a common saying that they would have been used to. One has to wonder how many there were because they were with Jesus for three days. Uh, when you think about going to, what, like we, I just missed the district conference because I forgot about it, uh, but uh, <laughs> I did. It came up too quick. But anyway, when you think about that, the first thing you think about is where am I going to stay? What motel do I get to stay in? How much can I afford? 
Uh, are they going to have meals provided? We've got to provide our meals. Where are we going to eat? You know, where are we going to eat? What do I wear? All that stuff. You get it that this crowd came out here to get people healed. They've been there three days. There are, there are no uh, hotels around. There's no motels. There's no restaurants. They're out in the middle of nowhere. And they stayed with Jesus for three days. Sometimes we get irritated if the, if the message goes over five minutes in a padded pew in a, in a heated sanctuary. <laughs> These people went for three days. And the crowd experienced firsthand the power of the living God as they watched uh, people do things that they couldn't do before. Lots of these people had to be carried to Jesus. They had to be helped. They couldn't walk. They couldn't see. There were caretakers everywhere. And I think they were, they were really hoping, let's get this thing over with so I don't have to put in all this care anymore and carry this person around or help them and show them. That's a big job to be a caretaker. And they all experienced the power of God. Uh, we neither see nor experience any limitation on the power of Jesus. In spite of that fact, there is uh, the, the fact that there is no university medical center anywhere in the area, nobody that Jesus has to consult with, no specialist that in a certain area, uh, you know, that he has to he has to talk to. He heals everything that is brought to him instantaneously and perfectly, and people marvel. The mute were all of a sudden speaking. Now, you might think on the way home, this guy hasn't been able to talk for a long time, and he may wear you out talking the whole trip home, and you wish maybe that you get a little muteness back. You know, I can't stand that. But they're speaking. The crippled are now restored. I think probably some of them carried their crutches home anyway. You didn't need them, but they're always there with you, and it's hard to give them up. Lame are walking. The blind are seeing. Somebody doesn't have to guide them up and down the mountain and down the path anymore. They can see danger now. And, and some people are not being uh, used anymore. The caretakers are free and clear to go on and do something else because of Jesus. In verses 32 to 37, out of compassion, this is what I want you to get, okay? Out of compassion with meager resources, <laughs> Jesus feeds thousands of needy people. 4,000 men does not include the women, does not include the children. There could have been upwards of 10 or 12,000 people there, and they all needed to eat. So in verse 32, after three days on the mountain, Jesus feels compassion in his heart for the people who came for healing and teaching. One of the reasons Jesus did that is because Jesus loves you and he cares about you. That's it. If you don't have compassion for people, you have no love for people. Jesus had love. And I also think that Jesus had in mind, look, we just did this with 5,000 people. Now we have 4,000 people. I wonder if the disciples learned anything. <laughs> Let's see how this goes, right? I hope they learned about faith. Jesus is apparently not interested uh, just in the spiritual well-being of people. His creation their need physically is also a concern for his well-being. Jesus doesn't just care about you spiritually. He cares about your physical well-being. And the question we need to answer here first is, what is compassion? What does that mean? I think Dr. Alan Ross has the best definition. I'm going to share it with you. He said this, compassion is that internal yearning of sympathy and concern for people who have great need. Compassion is that internal yearning of sympathy and concern for people with great needs. Do you have compassion? If compassion is what our master has for people, I presume it should be something we are interested in doing. And the problem is simple. They might grow weary for lack of nourishment on the trip home, Jesus said. So here's the need. 
and we're going to meet it with the power of God. The solution looks to be to the disciples insurmountable if one does not take Jesus into account. The first thing they do is they look, we've got seven loaves and a few small fish. There's no big supermarket anywhere in the area. We're out in the middle of nowhere. What are we going to do? Kind of the same thing they just got through going through with the 5,000. And as in the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples point out some impossibility to the task in light of the lack of enough resources. And that's what we do. Do I have the resources to go to the convention? Can I pay to have the meals? Can I pay to have the motels? Can I do all this stuff? How are we going to eat? And they're saying, well, how are we going to eat? We don't have enough money in the money box. What are we going to do? And this is another lesson in faith, which will be reiterated strongly for them in chapter 16. Can you imagine standing there and Jesus said, we're going to feed them? And you, you look around. 4,000 people is a lot of people. That's just the men. How are we going to feed all these people? They're looking around. And Jesus said, we will feed them. And they're standing with the guy who created all this stuff in the, in the first place. You see how ridiculous the picture is? He's Jesus. He's Jesus. He's the son of God. Why are we even asking how we're going to feed these people? Haven't we learned our lesson? The answer is no, we haven't. We're going, to, we're going to start learning it. And with, with the Son of God, the creator of the world, uh, who owns everything on, in the universe, they're asking, well, how in the world are we going to do that? Jesus inquired about the beginning inventory of the food available. This time we have seven loaves and some small fish. And by the way, please don't think that Jesus needed some kind of a, a seed to start his miracle. It's, it's like, you know, if I take away the, the loaves and the fish, Jesus couldn't do it. No, uh-uh, no. <laughs> he just wants to show us that you can have something small that you can give to Jesus, and he can make it very, very big and useful. In my Sunday school class, we talked about the fact that there is no, insignif there is no insignificant work if it's done for Jesus. Even if it looks small, it's valuable. And I don't want you to think that Jesus needed to have this uh, seed source for food on the premises to do what he's planning. No. I think he did that for us. The point is that compared to the size of the crowd, the resources are infinitesimally small. They're, they're minuscule. And so the report is, Jesus apparently said, what do you got? You got seven loaves and small fish. He said, let's get started. <laughs> With what? Are you kidding? Let's get started. Let's get going. And Jesus does. He gives thanks. And then he starts tearing the bread apart and handing out the fish out of this basket they had, apparently. And it just kept going and going and going. So Jesus says, let's get started. Everybody have a seat. First, in verse 36, Jesus takes these meager resources and he gives thanks. And I want you to understand that when you give thanks over your meager resources that you want God to use, what you're saying is, Jesus, I trust you. I believe you. I have faith in you that you can take this, whatever it is, small amount that I have and make it into something great. If I'll just give it to you, if I'll just trust you. Giving thanks at a dinner table is an act of faith. Where'd that food come from? Who made it? Who gave it to us? It's an act of faith and Jesus always has faith. So he breaks the loaves and he just keeps on breaking loaves. He just keeps picking up out of the basket. They're just there. He does what he always does. He gives the resources to the disciples who pass on God's resources to the ones 
that they're ministering to for his will to be done. You get that? You're like the disciples. You understand that? Jesus is going to take your, your limited resources and he's going to give you something that, that will give you the ability to help those who need the help. He took the, he took the fish and the loaves. He starts breaking them and handing them out. He gives them the resources to do their ministry and they go give it to the people who are in need. That's why Jesus did it in the first place. And I want you to see you and me in there. Could we believe that God always gives us what we need to carry out our ministries? If we're doing a ministry or a lot of ministries, will he take care of us? As long as he is handing out the resources, my friends, we will be fine. The result of the compassion of Jesus is that everyone leaves with a full tummy for their trip home. Kids are happy, mom's happy, everybody's happy. He will also not be sending anyone home with any infirmities. Now, once crippled people are carrying their crutches, probably walking and leaping and jumping on rocks like kids do when you have them in the mountains, they stay on the trail, no, they gotta jump on a rock or do this or something else. These guys are, are they're free. The formerly blind don't need their caretaker anymore to lead them. They're done having to be a follower in the dark. The mute have a lot to say on the walk home, so prepare yourself, buckle in. The formerly lame are walking and leaping and praising God. And caretakers are going to take a little while to adjust to that. Thank goodness. The disciples gathered seven basketfuls of leftover from the meal, and here the word that is used in the text for basket is a Hellenized word, and the word is spirus, if you want to know. And that indicates a larger basket than the smaller type baskets they use to pick up the 12 basketfuls with the 5,000. And these are a little bit bigger baskets. They pick up seven. The point is that Jesus has enough resources for more always. Jesus is the bread of life for all the world. Seven is the number of God and the number of perfection. So he's saying Jesus has what you need for survival for life, for ministry. So in the last part of it, 38 and 39, Jesus sends the crowd home and he heads for Magdala. Jesus fed the 4,000 men, women, and children off of very meager resources. In verse 39, he departs from there. He goes to uh, another name for the city is Magadan, uh, which is just north of Tiberias, which is on the uh, west side of the Sea of Galilee. Some call it northern, a northern suburb of Tiberias. And that's probably where Mary Magdalene came from. So from Matthew's account, what is it that we can say he is teaching us this morning? And will you believe it and will you and I follow it? That's the, that's the real issue. The truth of God doesn't change. We're, we're the problem if we don't have faith. First of all, our Jesus is compassionate. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, he was compassionate to you with the greatest gift that anyone has ever and ever will give you. I want you to know that it is easy as we're in the grind of dealing with people and helping people that need help, especially those that uh, can't help themselves. It's easy to get cynical and fed up with it. That's what cynical means. And hardened to the needs of people. You can get tired of helping people, tired of people being needy, tired of this, tired of that. And it's easy to do, isn't it? We must forgive those people and uh, we have to look at them the way Jesus does. And what he sees is need, and he wants us to have compassion. 
we must make a better choice and follow Jesus in those times. Secondly, Jesus has the power to do great things with a little of nothing. Great things with meager resources. If you're one of those out there who feels like, I just don't have much to give to Jesus. I don't have little. Whether it's money or whether it's my abilities or talents, I don't have much. Do you think Jesus cares about that? No. Moses said to God, I can't go talk to the Pharaoh. I stutter too much. So God sends his, son, his brother Aaron who is an eloquent speaker. But you know what I get a kick out of when you read through the Genesis passage and Exodus when he goes to see the Pharaoh? Moses is talking all the time. It seems like Aaron can't get a word in. What happened? You don't have to have much. God can take a little and make it enormous for his help. So don't let that discourage you. I wanted to read a quote here from Dr. Turner about this. And he says, quoting, Matthew's readers learn that they must have Christ-like compassion on the needy as they trust Jesus to use their meager resources to meet the needs of others. I have a friend that always says, uh, whatever I have, I'll give you half of it. We'll share it till it's gone. Well, that's, that's, that's a good attitude. We should have that for other people as well. Well, here's some things to uh, kind of draw together what we've learned. Number one in the applications. With Jesus doing this is what I'm saying, okay? We should be inspired about that compassion Jesus has had on us so we can pass it on to others. What did he give you? Eternal life. Do you think you ought to pass that on? Yeah. Maybe it doesn't take money. Maybe it doesn't take affluence. Maybe it just takes somebody willing to be friends with somebody who's got a need and they see Jesus in that and you can share that gift. He gives us what we need. We turn around and give it to somebody else who has need. That's the way it works. Secondly, if our ministry is in God's will, okay, don't forget that part that I said that, okay? What I said earlier was there's always enough to fund God's will. Not maybe your desires or your wants, but there's always God will make sure there's enough to fund his will. So if our ministry is in God's will, resources are not the problem where Jesus is concerned. Always. And then finally, a quote from somebody here, and I didn't write down who wrote it. Um, it might be Dr. Turner. Matthew's readers learned that they must have Christ-like compassion on the needy and they must trust Jesus to use their meager resources to meet the needs of others. Now I've said that twice from him because it's so true. Don't worry about what you don't have. God just needs what you do have. He'll take care of the rest. <clears throat> Excuse me, he'll take care of the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you and praise you for this truth. We have to admit that there's times we don't think we have enough time to do a ministry. Other things need to be done. We don't have enough money. Sometimes we think we don't have the wisdom or the wherewithal in that way or emotionally. And they're all just excuses. We're supposed to learn, as Matthew has taught us, from a guy who was there and saw this in person, Jesus doesn't need 
what we have to offer him. He can take what he had, what we have, and make it his own, and multiply it, and make it grow, so that we can accomplish your will. We want to be people like that. Give us the heart of faith, help us to have the desire, and help us to be compassionate. And you'll give us what we need to take care of it. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.